welcome to That's Debatable, the podcast of the Free Speech Union. We have a very special guest this week, don't we, Tom? We do indeed, Ben. Very excited to um, have with us today uh, Matt Johnson, uh, who's just written a book called uh, How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment. And uh, Matt, it's great to have you. And I think, just to correct me or add a bit of flavor around this, um, I've been trying to get a little bit more background on, on, on you. I think you write mainly online on mm. platforms such as Quillette, which is an online magazine, but also a lot of other outlets. You're based in the US, so you're six hours behind us uh, right now. But um, that is pretty much all I know about your background as well. This is your first book. But add some more flavor to that, if you will, if I've missed anything or uh, important that you'd like to add. Yeah, sure. Um, well, that's pretty much all you need to know about me, uh, <laughs> certainly for the purposes of this podcast. Um, but yeah, I've just been writing independently for several years. Uh, I worked in traditional media for a little while. Uh, I sometimes joke with friends that I decided to get into journalism like at the very moment when print revenue just collapsed and the industry went through its, its biggest contraction maybe ever. Um, so yeah, I've, I've definitely, uh, seen the industry from, from both directions. And, uh, I used to write for, for publications that were actually printed out and occasionally, uh, uh some of my work ends up uh, in the pages of, of, you know, physical magazines. And it's nice to have the book sitting next to me, you know, to actually see a, a physical manifestation of my work in the real world. Uh, but yeah, I typically write for online magazines like the Bulwark and Quillette. Uh, I've written, I've written for Haaretz a little bit, Aereo magazine so yeah jump around a lot and um do brilliant. stuff like this so it's pretty fun brilliant it's great to have you and um we've got all sorts of things that we want to to talk to you about i, I my first question i had was uh you know, why why chris hitchens um chris i mean he's, he died in 2011 which is now 11 years ago um but what 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 sort of made you decide your first book your first big project in print would be about Christopher Hitchens and, and this subject? Yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Um, I probably got into Hitchens for for many of the reasons why um, people sort of get sucked into the Christopher Hitchens rabbit hole on YouTube. You know, I mean, he's, he's just so eloquent and ferocious that, you know, I was a freshman in college and, and I found his, his anti-God stuff initially. And I was just like, oh, this guy's just fascinating. Um, but then, you know, as I, I started to um, develop a few ideas of my own, um, I, I recognized how Hitchens's principles, I mean, especially his really stalwart defense of what I would describe as, as liberal values or, or enlightenment values, um, really attracted me. So he was he was just a no exceptions supporter of free expression, which is, is probably what we'll talk about uh, for the most part today. But I also found his internationalism very attractive. Um, I, I found his sort of vindication of, of individual rights uh, attractive at a time where identitarianism was sort of gaining um, momentum, especially on campus. And it, he just he just seemed to check all these boxes for me. Um, mm -hmm. And then when I when I uh, decided to actually write the book, uh, conditions had deteriorated quite a bit. Um, we were <laughs> we were um, entering the Trump era. Uh, which we can also talk about. I think Hitchens was more prescient about sort of right-wing authoritarianism and populism than many people may uh, realize. But I also recognized that it seemed like the left was ill-equipped to respond to uh, a phenomenon like Trumpism. And and for many of the reasons I just mentioned, there, there was this strange authoritarianism sort of cor coursing through the left, um, this, mm. this illiberalism that had people shouting people down on, on campus and and, you know, fleeing speech rather than embracing it and, and engaging with it. So, um, yeah, I just thought Hitchens was this great conduit for, for all those subjects. And then he was also, he's just such a great read. So, you know, uh, it was, it was a, a confluence of factors. The world has changed so much in the 11 or 12 years since Christopher Hitchens died. Is there a danger or did you find a danger when you were writing the book of trying to extrapolate from his writings what he might say about the world now, almost like Muslims attempting to to map out what the sayings of Muhammad mean for life in a modern democracy. <laughs> is, is is there paradoxically this 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 difficulty in trying to take uh, the incredible sort of body of work that he's left behind and then trying to define what it means for uh, the tumultuous political period that we've all been living through in the last decade and more? Uh, I could say that one thing Hitchens definitely 
wouldn't have anticipated was uh, being compared to Muhammad in, in his afterlife. So I think that would, that would come as a surprise to him. Uh, but yeah, that, that's actually a great question because it's something I constantly have to ask myself. And, and the last thing I want to do is put words in his mouth or attempt to speak for him. Um, so I, I do always try to very clearly delineate um, what exactly it was that he said and then where I was speculating about where he, he might end up. But, you know, I, I, I do always have to check myself in that sense. And, and you know, I have no right to, to say Hitchens would have said or would have thought X or Y. And that's that's particularly true when it comes to a figure like Hitchens, who was quite unpredictable and quite dynamic. And, you know, he was he was known for for changing his mind. Um, I think that the change of mind was a little bit less pronounced than some people um, imply, but uh, that's something we might want to get into later in the podcast. Um, but anyway, the world has changed a lot uh, since Hitchens died. But at the same time, at least in the past few years, I've noticed some really um, remarkable reminders of his relevance. Um, there are the free speech issues we were just talking about, but then there was the, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, which sort of reminded people that a uh, robust American presence and, and a robust uh, NATO presence in the world is important. Uh, I, I think after many years of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, people had started to think of Hitchens's views toward interventionism as sort of um, anachronistic. Uh, but, you know, it's a good reminder uh, when, when you see a, a imperialist dictator rolling his tanks across his neighbor's border that, you know, um, the, the stability of the international system isn't something we can just take for granted. And we actually have to, uh, consciously ensure that stability. So I, you know, the, and then, you know, Rushdie was attacked on stage, um, right as the book was coming out or a few months before the book uh, came out. And there just, there just been this series of events that, that keep reminding me that, that Hitchens remains very, uh, very salient today. So, uh, yeah, I mean, things have changed, but yet they have stayed the same in many ways. I certainly enjoyed um, seeing you quote Hitchens, and I can hear his voice in my head when I see Hitchens's word, Hitchens' word on the page, Matt, and I find it, it very compelling. It takes me straight back to when he was around and uh, obviously on, on TV. I mean, in terms of the structure of the book, and you mentioned his unpredictability, Matt, which I think is, is a really good point. It was never... It was something I think we all struggle with. Is what what was he? What would he? What would his view be on this, or what would his view be on that? You structure the book by starting around his uh, first principles and, and talking about Christopher Hitchens' first principles. Is that do you think the sort of the lens through which you then have to 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 understand Christopher Hitchens and 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 sort of say, well, actually, he's a man of principle, and he's and therefore he's not married to a particular ideology. He's not married to a particular sort of outcome. He's married to a, to a first principle. And I suppose my follow-up to that, Matt, would be, if that's right, and, and I think from the way you've structured the book, it's, it's, it's close to where you're getting, um, did those principles change? Did those first principles change for Christopher over, over his life, over his career? Uh, yeah, that's, that's the perfect way into it, because there's this line from Why Orwell Matters, uh, which I cite in the book, where Hitchens says, uh, what Orwell teaches us is that politics are relatively unimportant, whereas principles have a way of enduring. And I think in Hitchens's case, it's it's interesting to look at how certain principles manifested themselves in different ways. So when when he was a socialist, he often emphasized international solidarity as the most important thing. Um, you know, when he attacked U.S. foreign policy and he attacked Kissinger, uh, he was doing it through the lens of international law. I mean, he thought that, that we should try to construct a more coherent and enforceable system of international uh, laws and norms. Um, and then, you know, when when he had his big turn, um, especially after September 11th, but also throughout the 90s um, regarding the conflicts in the Balkans, uh, he, he was making a comparable argument. He was saying that Saddam Hussein was very far outside of the uh, norms and laws that we should um, uphold internationally. Um, he was arguing that universal human rights should be defended. I mean, whether it's women in Afghanistan or, or just Iraqis suffering under bathism in Iraq. Um, so I, I actually do think there's a pretty clear connection there. But then at the same time, um, you just can't reconcile his support for the Iraq war with his really strong opposition to the Gulf War. I mean, because any argument that you're going to say about Saddam Hussein's aggression or his uh, the genocide of the Kurds, the Anfal campaign, um, or, or any any other horrendous aspect of his rule is going to apply uh, apply all the more forcefully um, in 1991. Um, so it's 
you just can't get around the fact that he he did um, evolve or he did change his mind in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I think his attitude toward the United States changed pretty fundamentally. I mean, he did used to regard it as I mean, he, he always appreciated the Constitution, um, the, the great roof of the First Amendment, which is how he described it. These were things that even when he was a, a extremely radical left winger, he he definitely cherished about the United States. But the United States role in the world in his mind changed pretty dramatically after the, the Cold War. And I think, uh, he's, you know, he was very critical of the U.S. for dragging its feet in Bosnia. But then eventually we did get involved and uh, we did lead a, a NATO effort to, you know, repel Slobodan Milosevic and eventually negotiate the Dayton Accords in, in the mid-1990s. And I, I think he saw that as a shift in U.S. foreign policy. He saw it as a move away from the sort of rail politique that had guided uh, foreign policy, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s and, and in the Cold War. And he saw it as an actual humanitarian intervention. So that's, that's just a really fundamental shift in Hitchens's career. And um, I, I do think that you can you can trace a pretty clear line, you know, for his, from his concern for human rights and, and universalism to those positions. Yeah. So so although that was a change in 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 sort of the outcome and the way he looked at the international stage, it w- you wouldn't you wouldn't say he really changed it, the underlying principles there, or 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 he did. To some extent, I mean, to some extent, you'd have to say he sort of did. It was a shift in emphasis because it was, um, I mean, he, I just, I just think that, you know, the, the Hitchens who was so hostile toward, um, the first Bush would have been impatient with the Hitchens that was supportive of the the 2003 invasion in in some ways, because these are just questions of emphasis always, um, you know, and, and Hitchens, when he, when he supported the Iraq war, the second Iraq war. Um, you know, he, he was extremely critical of the Bush administration for, um, warrantless wiretapping. Uh, he was a plaintiff in, uh, an ACLU lawsuit, uh, against the administration for that. And he got, had himself waterboarded and he said, you know, this is torture and, and it's inexcusable that the United States is doing this. He was obviously critical of the horrendous prisoner abuse at Abu Ghraib. So it, it's just like it, he, he, he retained many of his sort of left-wing inclinations, but at the same time, he just viewed that war as, as such a overriding priority that, you know, he was staunchly in support, in support of it until, until the very end. Um, but yeah, I, 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 you have to imagine that the younger Hitchens would have seen some of those, some of those disastrous, uh, crimes and mistakes and, you know, just the, the outcome of the Iraq war. I mean, Hitchens certainly, uh, expected the war to be, shorter than it was. I mean, his uh, compilation of essays um, about the war or in, in its early days was called a long, short war. So basically he was saying this is a continuous conflict that um, has been has been sort of simmering throughout the 90s with Saddam Hussein post-Gulf War, and, and now it's going to come to a short conclusion. Well, it didn't come to a short conclusion. A conclusion. It lasted for many more years. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's something that the younger Hitchens would have pointed out a bit more forcefully than the older Hitchens did. So, yeah, I, I don't want to present him as just this perfect paragon of consistency. Um, but at the same time, I also don't want to uh, ignore the ways in which he was consistent, you know, and, and on and on an issue like free expression, he was damn near perfectly consistent. So, uh, yeah, very relevant to us, isn't it, Ben? Free expression. Yeah, it is. And we, 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 there's, there's so much to cover. So we, we're going to come on to some explicit free speech points, I'm sure, naturally in the course of this discussion. But while we're on this topic, the, the title of the book, How Hitchens Can Save the Left, so it's, the book is about the man himself, but it's, it's about what his legacy means and, and perhaps how it can be utilised. Is his legacy such that it can survive the, uh, should we say, problematic nature of the Iraq uh, war for progressives today in 2023, or is he so uh, is he too tainted by the stridency of his criticism of uh, Islamism and conservative Orthodox Islamic teachings? Is that something that uh, is just too alienating to people on the left, progressive side of politics today? Um, I think it's it's likely the latter. I mean, I, one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Um, was to push back on the idea that you can just say the word Iraq and dismiss everything else Christopher Hitchens ever wrote and said. Um, so, you know, there's there's a chapter in the book titled Iraq, and I think many readers will probably um, be a bit chapped by how sympathetic I am to the war. Um, I don't want that to, I don't want it to seem like an, an apologia for the war. I mean, I think there are extremely strong arguments against it. Um, Hitchens got some things 
very, very wrong. Um, he was wrong about weapons of mass destruction. He was wrong about some terrorist connections and right about some others. I mean, it's it's good to remember that Saddam Hussein did support terrorism, but you know, drawing a link from Saddam Hussein to 9/11, that's uh, that's bad history. Um, but no, it, it's a great question, and I'm sure a lot of people won't even entertain the argument uh, simply because of of his attitude toward Islam, um, just how ferocious he was on that front, and and because of his interventionism. Um, they're, they're, they will always view him as this sort of apologist for American empire and, and neoliberalism and, and what have you. Um, but I, I actually just think the left writ large needs to reassess some of its priorities. And, you know, when you have the Democratic Socialists of America releasing a statement after the invasion of Ukraine and saying, well, you know, we of course, we condemn this atrocity because everybody can shrug their shoulders and say we condemn this atrocity. But we have to interrogate um the root cause of this conflict, which is NATO expansionism, and which is, you know, all the horrors that the the West has imposed on the world. Um, you know, when, when the left is still capable of making such horrendous, obscurantist, um, morally incompetent arguments, I, I really do think that it needs to um, it needs to reconsider where its priorities lie. Um, and I think Hitchens can you know, Hitchens is a good, he's a good prism through which to do that because I, I do think you can make a pretty strong case that his internationalism with regard to Iraq is an extension of principles that the left should hold, even if those principles don't lead them to support of conflicts like the Iraq war. I mean, Hitchens' support of the Kurds was very long standing. I mean, it was, it, it was decades long. Um, he went to Iraqi Kurdistan many times. He supported the Kurds in many other contexts, um, you know, in terms of how they were being abused. Uh, in the neighborhood in Turkey and, and Iran as well. And, you know, this is a longstanding cause of the left that Hitchens was was always a staunch supporter of. And I just think that there's this there's the cynicism that will treat that support of the Kurds as if it was some affectation or as if it was some sort of post hoc uh, rationalization for the Iraq war. That's just absolutely not true. And, you know, Hitchens, uh, a lot of people will call him an Islamophobe. I'm sure that's something you guys have heard at some point. Um, but he he was one of the strongest supporters in the Western media of Western intervention in Bosnia, where a lot of Muslims were under attack from, you know, from a, a, a dictator who was self-proclaimed as, you know, the sort of defender of Christian or orthodoxy in, in, the, in the region. And, you know, it, this is the sort of thing that that is papered over um, in, in these really ungenerous assessments of, of Hitchens's career. And, you know, Hitchens actually argued at one point um, during the war in Bosnia that one of the reasons why it didn't um, it didn't cause the West to mobilize more quickly in defense of, of the human rights of um, the Bosnians was the fact that um, that they were Muslim. I mean, he actually thought there was this sort of bigotry underpinning it. And he said if the if, if Muslim irregulars were bombarding uh, cathedrals in a country next door, were, were attacking Christians, that the West would have been mobilized to to act much, much more readily. Um, so this is just, it's just a reminder that these, these really simple labels that get slapped on people as complex as Hitchens, like Islamophobe or imperialist or what have you, I, they, they don't add much to the debate and they, and they don't eliminate much. Just, I've just finished a, a research project. We're coming towards the end of it, looking at the experiences of ex-Muslims. And it was a very frequent occurrence for me to be interviewing an ex-Muslim uh, in Britain who, or perhaps who'd been born, born abroad and then come to the UK later in life. And they'd say they'd seen Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins on YouTube. And we touched on this briefly uh, earlier on in this discussion about how influential he's been uh, as this sort of afterlife on on YouTube. And of course, to, to older generations, he's known as a, as a writer. Um, but to millennials and younger generations, he is a, a YouTube star, for want of a better word, for the, for the incredible hitch slap compilation videos uh, <laughs> that, that you can see that, that are not just um, the stuff that, that you know, teenage Western atheists are looking at, um, they're making, I've seen a life-changing difference to people growing up um, in Muslim-majority countries where they don't have any freedom of or from religion at all. And so he's still having this incredible influence a decade more after after his death. Yeah. I, I, I certainly found, uh, Matt, reading the book, there's all, all of that consistency you mentioned about his attitude to, to Islam in particular, the Bosnian conflict, the Kurds. I, you know, I had forgotten all of that stuff. It does get lost, as you say, when the labels get thrown around. I mean, Ben makes the point about ex-Muslims finding him on YouTube. Um, I refound him through through reading your book and 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 his attitude towards the boss. And again, his his 
going back to this Islam, Islamophobia charge, when he talks about the publishing of the cartoons and the free expression that comes with that, he always positions it as this is, this is good for Muslims, just as much as it's good for freedom of expression as a, as a concept. It's particularly good for the Islamic community. Yeah. And also that sense of the Islamic community is not one homogenous lump. Yeah. You've got all the different constituencies within that. He, he's really sharp on on the, on that as well whereas we are very we're always oversimplifying that in our discussions and certainly in the public discussions they're always getting oversimplified yeah yeah he was just he was deeply critical of this idea that the muslim world is this sort of amorphous whole and that's why you know when when after the uh, rushi fatwa when uh, jimmy carter wrote this laughable essay for uh, the new york times um, which said that we've become exclusively concerned with the author's rights, you know, but what we have to focus on here is the fact that a billion and change or however many Muslims there were in the world at the time. I know it's, it's probably closer to 2 billion now. Um, all these Muslims have been offended in their deepest sensibility and faith. And, you know, Hitchens would just hear that sort of thing and say, really, all of them, all of them are because there was a, there was a compilation of essays titled for Rushdie that was written by, uh, many Muslim writers, um, in the Arab world and in North Africa and, and around the world in the diaspora. And, and they were defending Rushdie's right to publish and they were defending um, the right to free expression. And, you know, the, so, so these people um, didn't, didn't have any truck with <laughs> Khomeini's uh, fatwa. And these, these people uh, don't want to be lumped into Jimmy Carter's uh, Muslim basket, you know, and, and he, he always said that the, the most important allies we have Hitchens always said the most important allies we have in the fight against theocracy around the world are, of course, um, secular minded, liberal Muslims. And they don't they don't even have to be secular minded. I mean, they did. They just have to they just have to defend certain principles in their own societies. And they just have to be, you know, H H Hitchens would often say, like, there are a lot of Muslims that don't care to be told by Al Qaeda to stay out of skyscrapers, you know, because the, the reign of terror isn't going to stop. Like they, they, they want to be a part of the modern world. They, they want to be free to immigrate and, and live wherever they want to. And, and this is the sort of liberalism that's forgotten because people see some two minute video of Hitchens ripping the Quran and they say, well, this, this man must be an anti-Muslim bigot. But I mean, you just, you, you, the most passing familiarity with his political history uh, will reveal that that's absolutely not the case. Even if you think, even if you think he was too strident, or even if you think he was too critical of of Islam, and I, I actually do think that sometimes, you know, when you are trying to forge these political alliances around the world, um, Hitchens wasn't desperately tactical. I mean, he, he wasn't. He always just sort of had this "do justice and let the skies fall" sort of attitude toward all of these issues. So yeah, he would he would say things that undoubtedly did um, probably alienate potential allies. Uh, but at the same time, as you as you guys pointed out, there are a lot of people in repressive, closed societies who see this really firm um, rejection of religious dogma and, and theocracy, and and they find it attractive. They find it more appealing than um, any sort of milquetoast liberal argument that I might make. So that's one of the ways in which Hitches is you know, thundering hitch slaps. As you say, they're not just attractive to the sort of like the sort of um, freshman in college who who just discovered the god delusion and is prepared to go home on thanksgiving and like you know give yeah. give his relatives hell over uh <laughs> over their their their, their delusions you know so uh, yeah I, I just it's that's a really good point it's good to remember because i i, I think his he he could have been more tactically sound sometimes but i think i think i'm a little jaded you know i i i don't have enough contact with people who, who really did um, change their minds because of the work that was done by Hitchens and Dawkins and Harris and Dennett, these, the, the other new atheists, yeah. you know, it's not, not exactly in vogue to talk about the value of, of these guys work, but you know, it had an influence on me and I, I don't have, I don't have this sort of um, pretentious attitude uh, that a lot of people seem to adopt in their later years where they just say, Oh, I moved beyond all that because I'm so sophisticated and uh, <laughs> I've really, I've really grown up. Um, so I, I still think all their work has value for sure. Yeah. I, I was going to uh, move on to some free speech questions, Ben, unless you wanted to carry on along the vein of, um, some no, of his views on Islam particularly. No, that's fine. Go on. I, I was, I was, um, again, coming back to this idea of, of where, what, 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 what Christopher Hitchens view was on free speech. And we can talk about whether he was an absolutist and exactly what that means. But sort of the practical question I have, especially sort of coming from the perspective of the free speech union, the practical question I have is, you know, we really struggle to get the whole concept of free speech to land mm. 
um, uh, particularly on the on the left, uh, without a doubt. Uh, it's, it seems to be mistrusted, it seems to be misconstrued, misunderstood by students, and we know this from, from the university institutions. And I just sort of thought, what would, what would Christopher Hitchens say about how that's happened, how we've let free speech as an idea, as a fundamental of a free society? How have we got to this place? And maybe he'd say, well, I told you so. I saw this coming and I could see it when I was, you know, back at the beginning of the 20th century, a 21st century, I could see it coming. Um, and I'm not surprised by it, but I'd be really interested in your thoughts about that. And then also kind of, well, what do we do about it? How do we use Christopher Hitchens to, 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 to make, to bring free speech back into the fold, if you will? Yeah. Um, that's, that's a good way to put it because I, one of, one of the core arguments in the book, especially the first chapter, which is about his first amendment ab absolutism or, or what Hitchens in some contexts would even say his free speech absolutism. Um, that's a distinction worth having by the way, because, uh, you know, that there's something about free speech absolutism that, that strikes me as unhelpful, uh, in the year 2023. Um, just because I, I always have to wonder if that applies to like, Twitter content moderation, for example, because I, I do know that if I was in, in, in charge of Twitter content moderation, I wouldn't want somebody like Alex Jones on there harassing the families of, of slain children, you know, and like, so it's, a, it's one of those things I, but I always liked his first amendment absolutism, which, which vindicates the principle as it's espoused in the U S constitution. And Hitchens said that one of the most uh, formative experiences for him, um, on the subject of free speech um, was when there were these neo-Nazis planning to march through Skokie, Illinois, um, in the late seventies. And Hitchens was, was, you know, preparing to, to say, you know, we should, we should go out and fight these guys in the streets. And, you know, he, he said, this was part of a story left-wing tradition where like fists and stones would fly and you'd fight the brown shirts <laughs> and, you know, and he, he said that the ACLU released the statement about how they were coming out in support of the right to march because you have to defend speech for the most reprehensible characters or you don't defend the principle at all. And he said that 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 changed his mind at the time. That it really it really like drove home the point of embracing the the principle in the hard cases. Um, and that this is an issue where he he really was consistent. If you listen to um, if you listen to an interview he did on C-SPAN right after the Rushdie fatwa was was issued, he's as articulate and compelling on uh, the necessity of, of free speech and the sort of liberal capitulation to theocratic bullying and other forms of authoritarian bullying, um, as he would ever be, you know, I mean, he, this is just something, a position he held, uh, with, with absolute, I don't want to say certainty, but certainty <laughs> throughout his entire career. And, um, I, I think, I think we can, it, it's interesting. I think we can probably invoke Hitchens on, on campus today in a way that, um, we may not have been able to uh, five or six years ago, just because the threats to free expression seem to me a bit more diffuse than they used to be. Um, yeah. You know, it, on the right in the United States, you have figures like uh, Ron DeSantis who want to remove um, want to remove books from the shelves in schools and want to sort of dictate what what curricula can look like in public schools and you, you have figures like Trump who have never been a friend of the first amendment, you know, who said we should imprison people for burning the American flag, which is a lesser offense I would say than uh, marching through the streets as a neo-Nazi in a largely Jewish community. That's why they chose Skokie. Um, so, it, you know, I, I, I think if you can point out these things to people that, you know, you're, you're getting attacks on free speech from both directions, you're getting it from the, the, the left and the right. Um, we just have to vindicate the principle. We just have to defend the principle in all cases and at all hazards. Um, I, maybe you'd be able to get more people on board, you know, and, and I, it's not, it's not as if, um, this is a simple, uh, left, right binary, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't call reactionary theocratic Islam, a left-wing movement. <laughs> there might be some left-wing sympathizers, but I would say it's a right-wing movement and Hitchens would certainly say the same thing. You know, and you would you would hope that a lot of liberals on campus who care about women's rights, who who care about gay rights, um, would see efforts to silence people who are criticizing Islam, whether in the Muslim world, as it's reductively called, or in pockets of the West. Uh, the people trying to silence that sort of criticism should should be ejected from the debate because they're you know, or maybe that's not the best way to put it since we're trying to defend free speech they should be argued out of their position they should be humiliated on stage they should be defeated in the in the uh in the public square 
Um, so yeah, I, I think maybe maybe uh, uh, Hitchens could be a compelling figure for some of the people who who seem to struggle with the concept of free speech these these days, to put it gently. He seems to lean into free speech always, Matt. I, I love yeah. the quote about you know, when the editor of a magazine is saying, shall we publish this, whether it's a cartoon or something that might get misconstrued. His point is actually um, you've got to, uh, the notion of keeping the sentence because of the risk, yeah. to defy the risk, to push the boundaries of free, free expression just a few millimeters further out, that notion now seems quaint. And it's one of the things that you quote from him in the book. And I think that leaning into free speech is so powerful. And we've talked about it on this podcast before, haven't we, Ben? Yeah. Um, uh, I th- that, that idea of really pushing, pushing the boundary rather than stepping back. And that's the only, that, that is the only way of defending it, ultimately. And the point mm-hmm. about consistency that you've made is something that's been very apparent in Britain in the last week since the coronation of King Charles III. Uh, where there were arrests of Republican protesters, preemptive arrests in case there was um, serious public disorder of some kind. Um, And so there has been this debate uh, in Britain, which, of course, has nothing like the First Amendment to, I mean, in America, there's there's no way, there's no analogy that you could reach for where such a situation would happen. Um, But there has been this danger, I think, that, that we've seen at the Free Speech Union of a sort of tit for tat exchange between left and right, trying to cancel each other um, and, uh, and and a lack of consistency that Christopher Hitchens, I think, would have had absolutely no time for whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really important point. I, I saw a spot you did on on TV about that, Ben, and I I thought it was a point well worth making um, because I I do worry sometimes that some of the people who um, declare their commitment to free expression most loudly, um, at least in the United States often do it very uh, selectively. You know, so Tucker Carlson has found his way to Twitter now. Um, He will be hosting a show on Twitter. And in his sort of introductory video, uh, he talked about how there are a lot of very important ideas that are being suppressed by the uh, awful American establishment media and by, you know, the repressive political culture that's that's grown up in the United States. And I, I always think, you know, this is a guy who's broadcasting in the United States under the great roof of the First Amendment, as as Hitchens would have put it. Um, and it's, it's also a guy who uh, attacks authoritarianism on the left and absolutely staunchly refuses to do so when it's coming from the right. So I, I think that that uh, level of consistency is really important, especially if you want to get people on board behind the principle itself um, instead of just um, instead of just behind a, a political movement that's instrumentalizing that principle. We've had a couple of examples. I mean, what, the hard case I think we had recently at the Free Speech Union was of a soldier uh, who died. Uh, well, it was it was uh, during COVID. Uh, Sir Tom, I can't remember his second name. He was um, he became Moore, uh, uh, Capt- uh, Captain what? Sir Tom Moore. That's it. Yeah. That's it, Captain Sir Tom. He became a bit of a celebrity, a cause celeb, and sadly he died uh, a year or so ago. And there was a tweet that went out from someone saying, you know, burn burn he didn't like british soldiers burn in hell burn whatever and and he got actually got convicted for that and Mm -hmm. uh that that was a really difficult case for us because a lot of people in the free speech union being mainly british obviously don't want to see the soldiers being um held up like that or or ridiculed like that Mm -hmm. and uh so we but we pushed it and we said no this is a case again where free speech a bit like the westboro baptist church which uh, we talked about in the previous podcast it's the hard cases that determine what your real stand is on free speech and 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 i think you know christopher hitchens is right right at the front of that race in terms of consistency uh we're trying we're trying to follow in his footsteps in that regard yeah, that's that's tremendous. So that's a it's a perfect connection you made with the Westboro Baptist Church, which is by the way, it's right down the street from where I'm at. Um, when I worked at a newspaper in in the state of Kansas, I, I worked in Topeka. So the Westboro Baptist Church is actually in Topeka, Kansas. Um, one of our uh, more ignominious uh, reputational blows, unfortunately. Kansas Kansas has a, an interesting political history, by the way. You know, it was a uh, it was a free state during the Civil War, and so you know that's that's something that we. It, it's just kind of sad that people associate Kansas with with backwardness and with the the Westboro, mm-hmm. and the, the, you know those people would protest by holding up signs uh, at soldiers' funerals. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and they would say things like "Thank God for dead soldiers." That's what the sign would say. I mean, the, the, it's the most disgusting thing you can possibly imagine. Um, it, I don't know if you ever read or, or listen to Megan Phelps Roper, but she's 
she's a really brilliant uh, champion of, of liberal values now. And she, she was in the Westboro Baptist church and to listen to her explain um, just how convinced of their own, you know, of, of their own righteousness um, and just how, and honestly, just how um, seriously they took the Bible and just how seriously they took what, what they regarded as their cause is really horrifying because it, it's just a reminder that, you know, these people who can be what, you know, lovely family members, fathers, you know, brothers and sisters can, can go out on the street and do such heinous things, you know, yeah. and, and yeah, they're protected by the first amendment and I'm glad they're protected by the first amendment. I mean, this is just, that's if, if cases don't really get much harder than that, um, yeah. Yeah, that's an Alex Jones level of, of derangement uh, to protest yeah. a soldier's funeral in that way. And I, I can imagine if I was related to that soldier, it would be difficult to swallow the first amendment in that instance, but yeah. I think the analogy yeah. of, of the tweet from uh, from this guy who'd posted, I think it was Burn, old fella Burn. He was drunk. I think he was watching football. He posted the tweet, and then I think he deleted it within about 15 minutes, and he had, I don't know how many, you know, 12 or 13 Twitter followers or something like that. So the, right. the analogy goes right. so far, um, but, it, but it was nowhere near as high profile as having two dozen people holding signs like that outside a soldier's funeral. It was, yeah, it, you know, yeah. it could have just vanished into a very obscure part of the internet. No one would have, would have ever seen it. Um, so on balance, as, as Thomas just described, we thought, well, yeah, we all find this absolutely objectionable and abhorrent, but we'd much rather live in a country where you can say stupid and obnoxious things. Um, because that's the only way, as Chris Fitchens would have uh, well made made clear throughout his career, that's the only way in which you can defend rights for everybody else. The the, the point about the um, the other point about the Westboro Baptist Church, um, this is a little bit of a forced segue, but I was just thinking about how much um, attention and support Christopher Hitchens had always paid to um, people who had left Islam. I'm thinking particularly of Ayan Hirsi Ali. Um, and uh, that's a fascinating part, I think, of his of his legacy as well. And it's certainly my own research. The 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 sort of tradition, if I can put it in that quasi religious way, that he has left uh, for the ex Muslim movement. I think and we've spoken a little bit already about the inspiration that that that, that he's continuing to provide in in his forthright criticisms of uh, regressive uh, Islamist states and so on. Um, so all all of that is still very much alive, and I think that inheritance that he has left for the ex-Muslim movement, which has sort of spawned off from the new atheist movement, um, is a fantastic legacy that he's left behind for freedom of speech and freedom from religion. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, he, it, it's just a, it's just one of those issues that's so fraught today, and it's so laden with misrepresentation and uh, dishonesty. And it's it, it is sad to me because you know I was listening to I, I randomly pulled up an old Sam Harris interview recently, and um, I'm blanking on who who who's interviewing, um, but she she's an ex-Muslim, and she said that when she saw this TED talk that Harris delivered. Um, do you, do you know who I'm, um, I think Mariam Namazi, he had a, he had a sort of infamous interview with Mariam Namazi, if that's the one you're thinking of. And, and they were at complete loggerheads. Is that the one? Is that the one where they were, that's the one where they were arguing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. they sort of had a, no, this is, this is a much more genial interview. So it's, it's not Namazi, but anyway, um, this, this woman said that when she saw, uh, Harris deliver this, this talk about the end of faith and where he talked about Islam, um, at Ted, and she said it was a really emotional moment for her because she felt like nobody in the mainstream Western media um, really seemed to care about horrendous misogyny and, and authoritarianism um, in the Muslim world in, in a way that made her feel seen or in a way that made her feel like uh, liberal values actually applied to her and our defensive liberal values applied to her. And I, I just think that's the sort of thing that people who do get jaded by the sort of culture wars and by you know it, it, you have to look at these things from both directions i mean there's no doubt that donald trump um used islam as a bludgeon a political bludgeon i mean he he said he wanted to ban all muslims from the united states he said he wanted to surveil mosques in the united states i mean that certainly has first amendment implications um he he really did go all in on fear-mongering around islam because this was when he was running especially in the primaries the san bernardino um, terrorist attack had just happened in the United States. So it, it's so easy to see how 
anti-Muslim um, sentiment can be instrumentalized in that way. But that also leads people, especially on the left, to ignore you know, women like the the one I, I, I was just discussing who, who see these really forceful condemnations of the way they're being treated, but in some cases by their own families, and see it as sort of the only source of real solidarity and support that they have. And I just think you can't you can't get around that testimony. You can't you can't wish it away if you're on the left and all you want to do is is attack the Donald Trumps of the world. Um, you have to figure out a way to support those people, and I, I just think that's something Hitchens was always uh, consistent on. You know, I brought up the four Rushdie compilation of essays. Hitchens, of course, he wrote about that, and of course, he wrote about um, how we, we shouldn't insult Muslims um, who who actually do share many of our core values um, and who live in our societies and and you know are are important allies in the fight against theocratic bullying of all kinds. Um, so I just I just think that's that's the most consistent liberal position to take. Um, and you just feel like it's so selective. It's, it's one or the other for, for far too many people. Um, there, there are figures these days who uh, make me think of Hitchens in this vein. Kanan Malik is one of them. Uh, he wrote a book called From Fatwa to Jihad. And, you know, he's, he's just, that book is a brilliant sort of um, intellectual and social history of the way Islamism can sort of take hold um, in Western societies. Um, but at the same time, Khan Malik is, he, he, he's just a, he's such a consistent liberal in many ways. He wrote this article, uh, about, um, Macron after the, uh, Samuel Paty execution, I think in 2020, I think that was October, 2020. Mm. Um, and there was this push to insert a, a law, like a, a French law to insert language, um, into how, how education, um, is, or, or just, I think it was something like um, the values of the republic have to be respected in, in French education, and there was a lot of those. But and you, you know, and this is something Macron came out in support of, and you kind of have to have a cynical interpretation. Like he was maybe peeling away some votes from uh, Le Pen, maybe he was doing this for political purposes. Um, but Malik came out and, and condemned that. You know, he, he condemned that, and he condemned uh, the theocratic tendencies that you can see in in. Um, in France. So it's just, yeah, I just think that consistency is so important. I mean, Matt, I think when we're, we're talking about, uh, uh, some of these, um, I particularly the, the moving example you gave of, this is the first time I've heard someone really understand me as an individual and, and what I'm going, going through. It just makes me think about how identity politics and sort of identitarian groups is, it's like a short circuit, isn't it? To, to doing some thinking and thinking, mm seems to be always has been difficult to think really to go back and do your own thinking for yourself um and i certainly take it from christopher hitchens that it's always valuable thing to do but my question is matt do you know do you think why are we short-circuiting or, or are we but why are we short-circuiting thinking and, and jumping to this sort of identitarian view of the world and is it is it worse now than it than it has been? But it just it's this this identitarianism, which has taken hold of our universities. It's now taking hold of certainly we see in our casework at the Free Speech Union. It's taking hold of employees who are also now expected to sign up to the group, without them even knowing they've signed up to it. Often until they mm -hmm. get in trouble and they've said the wrong thing. Um, you, you know, it, what are your thoughts on on that whole area? Yeah, so I, I have a whole chapter on identity politics uh, in the book. Uh, the chapter is titled Sinister Bullshit. So that will give you some sense for uh, <laughs> yes. where I land on the subject. Um, but yeah, this is, this, is something, this is something I'm probably most alarmed about. Um, certainly when I look at the, the, the left in the United States and, and the broader Western left, uh, th there has been this shift toward what I would regard as a really liberal form of identitarianism. Um, there, there are these claims to sort of identity based authority that you'll find people making very often. They'll say, you know, if you have, you know, certain, uh, racial characteristics, or if you're, if you, you can't comment on this issue or you can't comment on that issue. Um, and th this is, this is the sort of thing that Hitchens roundly rejected, uh, throughout his career. I mean, he, he, he viewed, the sort of like retreat to our tribal categories 
as a really dangerous and, and backward form of politics. He always emphasized universalism. He always emphasized human solidarity. Um, you know, so when I see books like uh, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility shooting up to the top of the bestsellers list, and then I see her making arguments like, um, you know, the Western ideologies of individualism and objectivity are these sort of these these dangerous touchstones that allow people to um, ignore their own um, race, racist conditioning. You know, I, I just think Western ideologies, I think that individualism, uh, objectivity. I mean, these these are like the most fundamental aspects of, of the Enlightenment. Like these are the things that give us individual rights, which which sculpted the United States and which give us the scientific method. And, you know, Hitchens had this really great um, interview. I, I, I think he was talking about Afghanistan and somebody asked him if, you know, the war in Afghanistan was an, an example of of the United States trying to foist Western values upon people. And, and Hitchens said, I, I never use the term Western values. I don't think there's any such thing as Western values. I, I think there are universal values, you know, and some of them come from the Enlightenment and some of them come from um, different traditions that fed into the Enlightenment. But, you know, I, you just see, you see figures like um, D'Angelo gaining such prominence in the United States. And you see, you know, the, the idea that you should vote for somebody on the basis of race or gender is, is quite common in the U.S. It's not it's not viewed as reactive or reactionary or um, regressive in any sense. And that's, you know, Hitchens wrote this piece in um, The Wall Street Journal. I think it was in 2008 where he said, you know, if I wouldn't avoid uh, voting for a politician on the basis of, of race, gender or some other identity based characteristic, um, then I also wouldn't cast a vote in their favor for the exact same reason. You know, he, he, what he cared about were uh, a politician's ideas and principles. And and that's that seems to me the, the most consistently liberal position yet again. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's depressing that that we've moved away from that and that it's really quite mainstream now to say, well, I mean, you know, we, we need to we need to make sure we get somebody of this race or somebody of this gender into this office. Um I'll always find that unattractive. I understand why people I understand why people focus on those things and focus on representation. Um, but at the same time, you know, when Barack Obama was the president of the United States, um, we didn't have the same skin color for eight years. He was my president. <laughs> I didn't I didn't feel I needed to be represented by somebody who looked like me, you know, and, and I just I just think that's a it's a healthier long term position for for a political culture to, to have, you know. We're not even allowed to go back to Martin Luther King, are we? Now <laughs> that's not allowed. <laughs> right? Could I make this? Is, this is slightly me playing uh, devil's advocate, for want of a better phrase. But the the new atheist movement was premised on the idea, among other things, that as society became less religious, it would become more enlightened, tolerant, and rational. Looking back on it now in 2023, society, particularly in the United States, religiosity has has collapsed. Um, and America had always been the holdout against the trend of secularization that had taken hold in Western Europe and the United Kingdom. Um, society doesn't look more enlightened or tolerant or rational, despite this collapse in religion. And it seems that people are just filling that void with exactly the kind of harmful, non-religious ideologies that, that we've just talked about. Um, is, is there something in well, what's your what's your personal response to that? But but also, what aspects of Christopher Hitchens' legacy can we draw on to push back against that? Uh, or is that a charge against him that that he's not here to rebut? And so there's not really anything that we we, we can pull out. Yeah, I do think there's a tendency now to uh, expand the definition of the word religion. Um, and for years, I was very critical of this tendency. I actually read a couple articles about it in, in Quillette a while back. Um, because I do think that that broad-based secularization has happened across uh, much of the the Western world, um, and I think to say that there will always be this sort of ambient level of religiosity that just gets channeled into different things. So when people move away from uh, traditional faiths, then they will end up uh, channeling that energy into radical political movements, or they'll become conspiracy theorists, or they'll become you know what have you. Um, I've I've always thought that that view was a little bit evasive because it does assume that there's just always this sort of stable level of religious commitment in society, and then it just manifests itself in different ways. 
Um, that, that doesn't seem to me to be true. I mean, we, <laughs> we used to execute people for, for heresy. You know, we used to be much more, much more, um, religious, like much more authoritarian in our expressions of religion and in our embrace of religion. And when I say are, I mean the Western world, broadly speaking, you know, um, I'm not sure when the last execution for blasphemy happened, but I think it was, I believe it was in Scotland, which is, um, somewhat ironic. Um, but I, you're right that since Hitchens died and as secularization seems to be, uh, taking place uh, across much, much of the Western and, and liberal democratic world that we do seem to be descending into deeper and deeper layers of tribalism. I mean, polarization in the United States has become much worse uh, since the mid nineties. Um, identity politics does seem to s- take on some, some elements of, of religion. You know, John McWhorter uh, just wrote this book called woke racism. And he sort of makes the argument that there are these, these very strange sort of, um, religious seeming aspects to, to wokeism for lack of a better word, or, um, sort of self-flagellating identitarianism. And I say self-flagellating because like there's this video of, of people like kneeling down in front of their neighbors in, in, in 2020, these white folks in this community who are kneeling in front of their black neighbors and they're, they're sort of atoning for past injustices. And there's just something about it that, that seems extremely creepy for lack of a better word. And it, it does seem religious and does seem zealous. Um, so I, I, I think, I think I'm a little bit more sympathetic than I used to be to the idea that people just, they just fervently seek out things that they can grab onto like a faith, like, like an immutable, um, set of principles. Uh, you know, so yeah, I, I, I just think, I just think that that sort of radicalism should, should always be checked and we should always be wary of it, you know? And that's, that's one of the reasons why the, the sheer sanctimony that we've seen, um, around, uh, around identity based issues, uh, over the past few years is really alarming. Um, it, it, it just shows that people aren't willing to, I mean, look at, look at how toxic the debate over trans issues is, for example. And this is one of those spheres that I'm not going to get into, you know, I don't, I don't study, um, I don't study transitions. I don't study like uh, the 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 data that would be that would be a, that I would have to understand to actually be some kind of like trans commentator. But it's fascinating that trans commentary is as widespread as it is. I mean, you just you just see it everywhere, and it's one of those things that just inspires such powerful feelings of um, revulsion and solidarity, and just on, on both sides. And it, it's just one of the it's it's weird. It's, it's like a huge amount of our intellectual and social capital is invested in this issue, which is of course an important issue, but it, 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 it's, it actually affects a rather small proportion of the population. And it's just become this really demonstrative um, movement that, that, that people obsess over and that sort of makes and breaks careers. And it's, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just feel like we're always on the lookout for, for some new cause to uh, hate each other over, you know, and, and, this, and a lot of these, a lot of these issues are truly insuperable. I mean, you know, it, it, you can't, you, you just can't reconcile um, the view that life begins at conception with the view that life does not begin at conception. You know, there are just some issues that, that are so profoundly um, incompatible or some positions that are so profoundly incompatible that you, yeah, you'll, you'll see really, really, hardcore intense support on both sides. And it's just, yeah, I just think that there are a series of incentives now that, that run up tribalism and that feed tribalism and, you know, and these, and these really incendiary issues are, are like driving that phenomenon. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. The extent to which irreligiosity or, um, a move away from religion could have something to do with some of that. That's honestly just the sociological question that deserves to be interrogated, but which I, I really don't, you know, know the answer to, um, I, I will say, you know, Hitchens was always at pains to point out that, um, just because a society is irreligious, that doesn't mean it's committed to secular liberalism in the same way that, um, you know, uh, America's founders were by and large or the way Thomas Paine was, for example, you know, um, so, so you know, you, you have irreligious communist states <laughs> like take. North Korea 
And Hitchens would say, well, it actually strikes me as the most religious state on earth because, you know, you, you have this, this condition of permanent servility and you have um, the, the worship of, of a, a single leader, you know, and, and he, he would say at the very least to pin that sort of um, system on atheism, which is something people have a habit of doing. They, they often say, you know, the, the great crimes of the 20th century um, should be pinned on atheism. Uh, it, it, it's, it's very disingenuous because these aren't, <laughs> the United States can be regarded as a secular Republic. You know, that's the sort of model that Hitchens would want to export to the rest of the world. Um, but the United States is, uh, rather a far cry from North Korea and, and the Soviet union, in my opinion. Um, so clearly secular pluralism can, can manifest itself in healthy ways. Whereas, you know, just sheer irreligious um, authoritarianism can be extremely uh, dangerous. So anyway, yeah, just, just that it's, it's, it's just such a multi-layered question. So sorry for the uh, long and rambling response. No, not at all. That's fascinating. Also. Yeah. And, and sticking with that religious theme, Matt, and also I'm aware that we're probably heading towards wrap up soon, but, mm. um, and, and sticking in with it and sticking with bad religion. Cause I've, I, I, think uh, there's probably a very bad analogy, but I think of someone like John the Baptist as a huge Old Testament prophet, an Elijah or an Ezekiel or John the Baptist, if we go into the New Testament. Again, that's a bad analogy. What's your view? Do we need, do we need another Old Testament prophet as we, as we push back and try and reestablish these, these first principles? Or is it groups like ours, the Free Speech Union, coming together? I mean, I suspect the answer is it's a bit of a bit of both, but I guess the thrust of my question is: Do we need another big Old Testament prophet like Christopher Hitchens, or do we actually have one out there um, already? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I think Hitchens is he's just a fun way to look at a, a long sequence of important issues. You know, I mean, I think I think Hitchens would be the first to encourage people not to have idols, uh, not to have uh, heroes. I've just fallen foul uh, of Hitchens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> I think the, the idea of, of Hitchens as an old Testament prophet is yet another, another one that, that would have um, graded on him just me. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we, we definitely don't. And, you know, I, I, I hope my book isn't a hagiography. I, I don't think that it's um, I don't think that my criticisms of, of Hitchens are, are difficult to detect throughout the book. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's, he's a figure who had a Im- big influence on me. Um, and I, I, I remember uh, when I first discovered him, you know, early in college and I, and I, I really enjoy reading Hitchens. He's just at, at, at the very least, you know, no matter what you think about anything we've discussed throughout this conversation, um, he was a brilliant stylist and he was worth reading. And, you know, no matter what your views are. And he, he also, you know, about half the time he, he wrote really long literary essays. You know, I mean, he could write about uh, Oscar Wilde or um, about John Brown, you know, in the same week. And the, this is just this is just a guy who had a lot of range. Um, so, yeah, I, it, I, I don't I don't think we I definitely don't think we need some figure to rally around. Um, we probably don't need an Old Testament prophet. Uh, I, I just, I, I do think that the sort of like Hitchens would always say that the, um, the strength of the atheist movement, such as it was, uh, if you want to call it a movement was the fact that it wasn't really a movement. Like that, that's what I was getting around to. It's just like, it was, uh, he, he hated the idea of calling uh, new atheists brights, which is something that was floated by, I think, I think Dawkins yeah. at, at one yeah, point. Yeah. And, uh, he, he always, he always thought that sort of tribalism was just unattractive. Um, and he, he yeah he he just thought that the the capacity to recognize that there's this one thing we agree on you know which is um the value of a secular society the value of pluralism um the the threat posed by theocratic bullying you know there's that thing and then and then beyond that you know you don't have to (laughs) you don't have to share a suite of of uh, positions with somebody He, he often said that you should never be afraid to share a platform um, with someone just because they they happen to have some unsavory views. I mean, he said that he was he was speaking alongside people who didn't agree with him on Rushdie um, when he was supporting the NATO intervention in Bosnia. Like that was an example he used in letters to young contrarian. I mean, he said he he ended up on uh, the same stage as, as communists sometimes, you know. But he was just like, don't don't let people um, don't let people tell you that you're guilty by association. Uh, that's, that's actually a very authoritarian tactic. It's, it's an ugly thing to say, 
you know, I don't have a problem with, I think platforming is an important issue. If you have a really big platform and you decide to invite on some rank conspiracy theorist, I think you're being irresponsible. Um, but at the same time, I also think people should be free to have open exchanges with a really broad and diverse array of people. And it's sometimes you'll have somebody on who's, you know, is, is a uh, controversial for some reason that you might not even know about, you know, and if somebody tries to tar you with that later on, it's just, uh, it's just a, it's just an ugly sort of diversion, uh, diversionary tactic. So yeah, I, I just think, I just think that you can, you can have a, it's a broad, it's a broad roof that you're trying to build. If what you care about is, um, free expression. Um, and, and that's definitely a, a case Hitchens made. Well, I, I think that's a perfect note to end on, unless there's something you want to ask Tom or something you'd like to add, Matt. Not at all. I think that's a, a but Matt, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. That's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, guys. The title of the book, I'll just repeat, is How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment, which you can buy now. Oh.